6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Psalms, chapters 61 through 68. Well, let's begin by opening with a word of prayer. It's always a radical thing to do. We should never enter the Word of God without prayer. And uh, let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for your Word. We thank you especially for the book of Psalms, that portion of the Word that ministers to us when our needs are severe, when our needs are painful, when we have a tendency to lose our bearings. We thank you for this incredible collection of songs and poems by your servants that minister to our deepest heartfelt needs. We thank you, Father. We pray, Father, that you would bless your word and this evening as we explore some of these, as we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are surveying the book of Psalms, and we're going to explore Psalms 61 through 68 this evening. Many of them are rather short ones, uh, but uh, still we will jump right in. Psalms, of course, are we're really paging through a hymnal. Israel's hymnal, and uh, it's, it consists of poetry which is laced with strong theology, some astonishing issues that lurk beneath the phrases, uh, but it is primarily praise. The Hebrew term for the book means praises, and 55 of these are addressed to the musician. They're intended to be sung. Unfortunately, we've lost that music. We, we don't know how they sounded in that sense, but it's the concepts and the issues that we want to get into. In the Greek, they, see, they speak of psalmoi, a poem to be sung as a, on a stringed instrument, or a saltar, which is a harp or stringed instrument. From those Greek terms, we get the term that we call them psalms. That's an English term. And there are about 150 of them, 73 specifically ascribed to David, and um, 12 to Asaph and 12 of the sons of Korah, both were songsters, if you will, and a couple of Solomon and a handful of others, including one from, by Moses. There are 48 anonymous ones, many of which, though, scholars still uh, ascribe to David anyway because of his style and other things. But in any case, that's what we're skimming through. And it's interesting that the book of Psalms is actually five books. If you, took, if you separate those five into their constituent parts, you really have a Bible of 70 not 66 books, but let's not cause confusion on that point. These five collections have been labeled by a number of scholars the same way the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, are labeled. They have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, of the five books of Psalms. And uh, there's various ways to try to rationalize this that I could go through, but I have to tell you candidly, I'm not overwhelmed by the clarity of that categorization. What we do know, there are five books because each one ends with a special benediction. So the partitioning obviously has some, some literary roots. But uh, I personally am not going to make too much of the, the packaging of these by some commentators. We're just going to look, we'll just go through them. And we, of course, are in the second of those five books. Book two, as they would call it, sometimes called the Exodus portion of the Psalms. And uh, now, as we 
approach this particular kind of literature, let's stand back and think a little bit about how we want to approach it. Uh, historical passages or prophetic passages, we try to get in and, and get the expositions of them. But this is really a devotional exercise that we're engaging in. And so first of all, we look at it from its past. Many of them are specifically labeled as to David's predicament that led to the psalm, what his motives were in writing it, and so forth. And that's useful where we can infer it correctly. But what we're really interested in more is how does this impact Israel today? These are Israel's hymns. How do they impact Israel today? That's the present tense sense of them. But what most of us are really interested in is how does it affect us personally? How does it impact you today? And I'm going to suggest to you that if... You have, if you're not in or haven't been in the real depths of terror, despair, anxiety, then you can speak about the Psalms only as the blind speak of color. That what they're all about is deep, deep um, issues of the heart. And so we need to understand that. That's the personal side. That's the important side for most of us. But there's another dimension of the Psalms that... Uh, people are somewhat familiar with, and that's the prophetic nature of them, especially that subgroup that are called Messianic Psalms. They describe Jesus Christ in some astonishing ways. In fact, the, um, the ones that we call Messianic are those that, are, that not only speak of Christ, but are quoted as such in the New Testament. There are a few other Psalms that are not so quoted in the New Testament that I suspect also are Messianic. We'll touch on those as we go. But there's yet another prophetic category beside messianic that we might be aware of, and that's dispensational. Some of these psalms would seem to portray certain segments of time in God's eschatological profile, from, from the, the somewhere between the creation and the establishment of the kingdom. We have a number of specific periods of time uh, portrayed in the prophetic scriptures. Many of these psalms would seem to amplify uh, those uh, those uh, dispensations or segments of dispensations um, appropriately. So those are, uh, and that, that's speculative, but uh, I'll leave that to your own judgment to see how you feel about those things. But past, present, personal, and prophetic are the four, at least four, different ways we can view or approach the Psalms. But I want to highlight what my, uh, really is a caveat. Uh, the, the, the animals that were suitable for clean sacrifice, the clean animals for sacrifices, were those that chewed the cud. And I think there is a deliberate intention for us to understand that we should be doing the same thing, chewing the cud. The prophet says, Thy words were found and I did eat them. And Jesus in John 6 makes a, has the uh, eat my flesh and drink my blood in a, in a metaphorical sense, of course. Um, and John in Revelation, same thing. He takes the little book and and eats it in chapter 10. These are, these are idioms that are very deliberate, very profound. We want to avoid analysis paralysis. We'll talk about some background and so forth, but it's very, we're going to try to minimize the peripheral aspects of this. Because that can blindfold your souls to the real message. To get caught up in some of the technical or historical details. We're interested in prayerful absorption, not intellectual dissection. This is not a doctrinal uh, excursion. It's a devotional excursion that we're involved in. And the main thing we're going to try to achieve is a gateway to his presence. That's really what we're all about. That's what we want to try to accomplish with all of this. So, okay, let's just jump in with Psalm 61. 
And uh, like many of these psalms, David was in danger. Clearly, he was apprehensive. He had issues. It's, many scholars believe that Psalm 61 is, is one of those that he penned while uh, facing the rebellion of his son uh, Ab, uh, Absalom. Absalom had led quite a revolt, a very widespread thing in 2 Samuel 15 through 18. And um, four chapter 15, 16, 17, 18 deal with this widespread rebellion that figures so prominently in many of the Psalms. And this is not just a personal issue with David. This is his, his uh, throne itself was in danger, as will become clear as we get into this. So, so this is to the chief musician on a neganah, which is a stringed instrument, probably not distant from our guitar kind of sounding, if you will. Psalm of David. He opens up, hear my cry, O God, attend unto my prayer. His first opening line is a cry to God. From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Now there's a familiar phrase in our ears, isn't it? Who is that rock? That's not, you're right, it's Jesus. It's not just a speculation. Paul makes that point in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4. He speaks of the rock that followed him through the wilderness wanderings. The one that was struck for the water and so forth. It was, a, it was idiomatically, a, Christ is our rock. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. That's David's plea. For thou hast been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. Is he a shelter for you? Is he a strong tower? You know, those are very comfortable poetic phrases. Is he really? He has been for me. And I hope you discover that too. David says, I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust in the covert of your wings. Selah. Now, the word trust there, or make my refuge in the covert of your wings. And um, the wings. Under his wings we shall trust, according to Psalm 91. We'll get there later. Um, in Matthew 23, Jesus one of the great tragedies of history is I would have gathered thee as a hen gathers chicks, but you would not. And uh, David says, I will trust in the covert wings. He says, I will abide in the tabern in thy tabernacle. That's a strange phrase. He was a king. He could not go in the tabernacle. He had to be a Levite to go in the tabernacle. He's speaking idiomatically here. Obviously, he understood the tabernacle. He'd studied the scriptures. He knew what was in there. And he can emotionally abide in that in the sense of relying on it without physically going in there. He couldn't do that as a king. Uh, it's, a, it's verboten. He continues, for thou, O God, hast heard my vows. Thou hast given me the heritage of those that fear thy name. Boy, that's a precious thing. That's a precious thing. I, in, in, in relatively recent years, have come to really value the heritage that you and I enjoy. We live in the most interesting political experiment on the, in the history of the planet Earth. You, if you, you, you read about our founding fathers, those were geniuses. They were passing out pamphlets, the Federalist Papers, they're passing out pamphlets on the street corners that today are reading at the college level. <laughs> it's astonishing to see the way they express themselves. It's astonishing to realize how they put God ahead of all their, in their thinking. 
And um, Newt Gingrich has just done a book called uh, Rediscovering God in America. And it's basically just a recounting of how the God of the Bible is everywhere in Washington, whether they like it or not. <laughs> and uh, the heritage we have, you know, um, we have highly organized groups of people trying to separate us from that heritage. We use the term liberal. It's not, that's not a descriptive term. They're not liberal at all. They, they, they don't, they, uh, they're not tolerant. They're only tolerant if you agree with them. So liberal is not a descriptive term. You know, the homosexuals have pawned off this term gay. Well, I'm gay. You know, they like to say that. As if, there's nothing gay about that lifestyle. It's life-shortening. But they've been able to, you know, play with that vocabulary. We don't, we fall in the same trap. We call them liberals. No, they're, they're subversives. They're trying to separate us from our heritage. They're welcome to live here, welcome to do whatever they like, but not separate us from our heritage. And uh, you see it everywhere. I just got back from my 53 unit of the Naval Academy. And it's astonishing what they've done to West Point Annapolis. Thrown away 150 years of tradition. It's a wonderfully uh, facilitated place, but it's, there's something very fundamental, fundamentally lost that's going to come home to roost. Here David says, Thou hast given me the heritage of those that fear thy name. Boy, have you ever thought about how grateful we should be for the heritage that we enjoy that has been brought to us at such a high price? It's interesting that the military cemeteries are filled with patriots who died fighting everything that the so-called liberals stand for. But it is what it is, and God is in control, so we stand back and watch. But let's at least be grateful for the heritage you and I have had the benefit of. David, Thou wilt prolong the king's life and his years as many generations. That's his confidence. He shall abide before God forever, O prepare mercy and truth, which may preserve him. So will I sing praise unto the, thy name forever, that I may daily perform my vows. And... Uh, the word abide there, by the way, in the Hebrew actually means enthroned. And he, David, of course, had a covenant that his, di his dynasty would endure forever. That was the promise that was given to David in 2 Samuel 7. And that's the promise that was con confirmed to Mary in Luke 1. And uh, we'll, get, we'll encounter all that in, in Psalm 89 when we get there. But... Uh, Oh, prepare mercy and truth which may preserve him. The closer you get to God, the more we realize our need for mercy. You know, it's very interesting uh, to, to, uh, to understand. If you go to Isaiah, let's just take a few verses from Isaiah 6. Isaiah speaks very interesting. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train, his skirt, filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings, and twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. So the seraphims that he, Isaiah saw, some people think are the same as the cherubim, some say they're a little different, I won't go down that, it's not, it's peripheral to our interest here. But then Isaiah continues, and one cried to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Notice there's three. It's one of the hints of the Trinity all through the Old Testament. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door, that is the thresholds of the door, moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. So we, this is Isaiah getting a glimpse of the throne of God. 
Aren't you envious? Wouldn't that be something to actually behold? That's, that's what he's, he's getting a chance to see here. What is Isaiah's reaction with verse 5? Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He realizes, he sees God, he realizes how unworthy he is to be there. And we could just concatenate all through the scripture. When people see God, they realize their shortcomings. And likewise, that was David's reaction here too. Well, let's move to Psalm 62, just to zip through these things. And if somebody says, this is the only psalm, what on earth? It's not the only psalm, there's 150 of them. No, the word only, it's a Hebrew adverb. It truly, only, and alone is the same adverb. And so this psalm has the word only, in effect, in verse 1, verse 2, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, and verse 9. And so among, among uh, scholars who have not better ways to spend their time, they call this the only psalm, because it has only so often, see. So you can use that as a little quiz with your Bible study group during the week. I know the only psalm, <laughs> Psalm 62. <laughs> and uh, Okay. To the chief musician, to Jedithan, a psalm of David. Psalm 39 was also written to Jedithan, one of the chief musicians. And apparently he um, led the orchestra to the choir when this psalm was, was uh, sung. Truly my soul. The word truly there is the same word. It means only. Truly my soul waiteth upon God. From him cometh my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. And I shall not be greatly moved. So defense or high place, okay? But there's, that's where the only echoes are starting here. How long will ye imagine mischief against man? Ye shall be slain of, he, ye shall be slain all of you. As a bowing wall shall ye be as a tottering fence. Then only consult to cast him down from his excellency. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth. But they curse inwardly. Selah. My soul, wait thou only upon... There's only again. See, my soul. Wait thou only upon God. For my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge. Uh, and my refuge is in, is in God. Trust in him at all times, ye people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Surely men of low degree are vanity, and men of high degree are a lie. To be laid in the balance, they are altogether lighter than vanity. And by the way, the word surely there is the same word only again, by the way. Trust not in oppression, and become not vain in robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. God hath spoken once, twice have I heard this, that the power belongeth unto God. This once or twice is a Hebrew stylistic thing. It's a way of saying repeatedly. There's a number of those things you find in the Proverbs and elsewhere. It'll say six things that God hates, in fact seven. It's, it's a stylistic thing. You say, well, you make up your mind. No, no, that's just a way they, it's, it's a form of emphasis, if you will. You know, six things God's hate. In fact, seven. Let me he list seven things. Anyway, it's a similar type of structure, a grammatical structure here. 
God has spoken once, twice have I heard this, that power belongeth unto God. Also unto thee, O Lord, belongeth mercy, for thou renderest to every man according to his work. And uh, boy, that's something that sounds a little New Testament, doesn't it? Thou renderest to every man according to his work. Is that Old Testament law? No, it's New Testament. 1 Corinthians 3, 8. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. Every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. I'm enjoying a book by Joseph Dillow. You know, it's interesting, for 400 years, they've, the Calvinists and Arminians have argued, once saved, always saved, or you have to persevere to the end. There's a middle ground that is, it appears to me to be very, very scriptural. Once saved, always saved, that's bulletproof, Romans 8, you can go on and on and nail that one. But then why did Paul who certainly is an expert on grace, live his life in, almost in paranoia that he might miss the mark. He that perseveres to the end. He, what he's worried about is inheritance. Being saved gives you entry into heaven, doesn't give you the rights to rearrange the furniture. Those that reign with him, you will reign with him, if so be that you persevere with him, that you're a partaker, a metakoi. And uh, so you begin to realize we don't talk a lot about rewards, but they're crucial. There's going to be a lot of people that are going to be really upset when they're saved. They're going to get to heaven and discover, wow, did I miss the boat. They'll be crying. Their tears, God's going to wipe away their tears. Why are there tears in their eyes? Because they realize the opportunities they lost. You and I need to understand that our position throughout eternity is going to be a function of how effective a steward are we of, of the opportunities God brings us. You're not earning your salvation. Jesus paid for that. You're, I'm talking about people who are saved. If you're saved, you're saved. He did it all. And, try to add, and to try to add to that is blasphemy. On the other hand, he's called you to obedience. He's called you to stewardship. And he's going to reward. The first Corinthians 3 talks about it. The beam of sheep, you're going to be rewarded. Most people don't take that to heart and realize that's going to be a big deal. And I think a lot of people are going to be crushingly disappointed. That's where the weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth come in. In so many of those parables that are a little confusing otherwise. Every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. Wow. Well, anyway, let's move on to Psalm 63. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Well, here again, though, this is one where he's fleeing as a refuge. And, uh, O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. Is he thirsty? Absolutely. Is that what he's talking about? I don't think so. What is he thirsty for? God. It's a spiritual plea. That doesn't mean he wasn't also thirsty, but I don't think that's really his, that's, I don't think that's really his problem here. He's a dry and thirsty land where no water is. To see thy power and thy glory as so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. By the way, that first line, O God, thou art my God. That possessive is, it changes everything. Is he really your God? Or is he a God that you just heard about? Is he a God that you maybe learned a lot about? No, is he really your God? Um, there's an interesting thing that occurs in Matthew 22 where um, they've been asking, the lawyers were asking Christ a question. He, 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 he turned to them and said, uh, let, me, let me ask you a question. Uh, David, uh, whose uh, who son is he? Uh, uh, the Messiah, whose son is he? He's the son of David. 
Right. It's okay. Then how can David, and he quotes Psalm 110, how can David say, my Lord? And he, how can he be David's Lord and be a son of David? And they couldn't answer that. And his whole, and, and from that point on, they didn't ask him any more questions. The whole thing hangs on a yod, which is a little like an apostrophe. The word Adonai with a yod makes it possessive. How can David say, my Lord, if he's David's son? They, they couldn't handle that. And I think you know, that, that, it's interesting. You know, Jesus said, not one yod or one tittle shall pass on law till all be fulfilled. And here's the case with that yod. Won the argument. They, they were to put him to totally, totally confused. Well, here again we have, oh God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee, in a dry and thirsty land where no water is to see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Because of love, thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. That's quite a statement. Thy loving kindness is better than life itself, to have God's enduring mercy. My lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. Many of you sing this as a chorus. We used to sing it at Calvary all the time, right? My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. When I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. And they did have night watches. That from sunset to 10, and from 10 till 2, and from 2 to sunrise. So that's, he may be referring to military watches or just in a restless night, whichever. Because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. There's that idiom again. My soul followeth hard after thee, thy right hand upholdeth me. There's his right hand again. I think that's interesting. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Psalms. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. Or you can call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music